Welcome to Speakeasy for Sport. Our guest today, Daniel Pink, is the author of five New York Times bestsellers, To Sell is Human, Drive, Win, and his latest, The Power of Regret, How Looking Backwards Moves Us Forward. He also teaches a master's class on sales and persuasion, um, and we are excited to bring Daniel Pink to our show. Daniel, how are you? I'm very good. Thanks for having me. Man, this is I'm really excited about this. You know, I've been giving your book um, the power of regret to all of my coaches around oh, wow. the country who were, who've, who've been on these four sabbaticals and they're waiting for the next opportunity. I feel like it's a great time to look backwards in, in order not to make the mistakes. And I thought your book summed it up. Great. Uh, congratulations on another great book. Hey, thanks. Thanks. I, and I guess it sounds like I owe you some royalties too. <laughs> these recommendations. Yeah. No, you know what? It's, this is a fun part about being a coach is being able to share the things that you're learning with other people. And, you know, through the years, and we'll talk a little bit about drive and some of the other things through the years, I've used a lot of your resources to really move our teams forward, move our programs forward. Um, and so again, it's a, it's an honor to be able to have you on here. Today. That's awesome to hear. I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that. You know, I'm, I'm a, I'm, I'm not an athlete, but I am a sports fan. So when I hear from people who are athletes and, and real sports folks, uh, I, I do, I do love it. I have, uh, your, your listeners who, ha who have the mis who have the good fortune of not having to look at us because we're talking on a video right now. We'll see behind me is somewhere in there is a cap that I got from a player, uh, on the Miami who signed from a player on the Miami dolphins, uh, who said he read the book and it helped him be amazingly helped him become a better offensive lineman. I believe it. I yeah. believe it. So that's um, awesome. I, you know, that, that keeps me in the writing business for a couple more days. Well, I think what's beautiful about it is you do so much research and, you know, everyone talks in sports about analytics and data and, and what a big thing it is now. And you do the same thing with your books. And then when you come in and you, and you support it with an idea or belief, you know, it's really easy and it resonates easily to a person who's used to understanding and looking into data. Well, thanks. For, I mean, I appreciate, I really appreciate your saying that because I do really try to do an enormous amount of research. And I've actually never made that analogy, Jamie, into uh, analytics. And I think that one, it's a sports analytics. And I think one of the things that you see in sports analytics is that when you look at the, the facts, when you look at the research, sometimes it proves your intuition's right. And sometimes it proves it wrong. And it's like, whatever the outcome is, is like, go, just go, you know, go with what that, go with what the evidence says. You know, if you're going based on, you know, a certain kind of ideology about how you should, how you should coach uh, basketball or how you should manage a baseball team. You're not going to, you're not going to, you're not going to do very well. And if you, but if you go based on, Hey, you know what this in this, in this, you know, the classic example now it's, it is, you know, how, how uh, football teams don't go, uh, don't, don't um, uh, punt too often on fourth down, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, except for our, our mutual colleague or your friend and, and my um, colleague, my uh, Northwestern colleague, uh, Pat Fitzgerald, who goes, who actually goes for it on fourth down more than most football coaches, because he's a guy, he's a Northwestern grad, so he can do analytics. Yeah. The numbers say to go for it between this yardage and, and it, much more, <laughs> much more than you would, much more than you would, you would think. And, you know, if you look at, if, you know, if you look at, I mean, just look at in your career, in your career in basketball, just like how much like the, the three pointer has, has changed yeah. things, you know, it's gone from, it's gone from people saying, you know, back when the ABA and the NBA merged saying that's not real basketball <laughs> to people saying, oh, that's just like kind of a gimmick. We can we can live with it to it becoming an essential part of the game. And that was driven in part by analytics. Yeah. The beautiful part about data is now that everyone's going for it on fourth down and everyone's shooting three pointers, the data is going to going to flip at some point because it's going to say, well, you probably shouldn't go for it as much. Or you probably shoot, sh shouldn't shoot as many threes. Um, and that's what I, I, I'm really curious to watch when that happens. I agree with you. Right I now think it looks that's, like we should go for it because no one does. Absolutely. I think, I, but I think that's, I think that's one of the great things about, about, the, about that strategy. I mean, you, you saw this thing and we'll, we can get to talking about other things, but this, you know, you know, you, you followed what's happening at, you know, Grinnell college and their basketball yeah. program. They had a, they had a game this year where they, sh the coach told them to shoot only threes, <laughs> which, well, seemed, which seems kind of nuts. Yeah. But. Well, I'll tell you this. So when Grinnell, I was at Emory and Henry college, uh, back in 2004 to 2006, an assistant coach, we ran a run and gun system at the same time Grinnell was running this run and gun system. So at the time, Emory and Henry and Grinnell were almost like brother programs doing the same thing. We would talk almost weekly about, 
how we're getting more shots up. We actually had this convention that we would, that we created that we would go to. So I'm very familiar with Grinnell basketball. Um, and it's like, like you said, it's like basketball on steroids. It's like analytics on steroids. Yeah. And play. whatever works. I mean, I just, I think they're endless experiment, uh, you know, endless <laughs> numbers of experimentations that you can do. But the, the point is, I mean, just to steer this back is that, you know, one of the things is that when we make decisions in our work life, when we make decisions in our personal lives, when we make decisions as a coach or a manager, um, there is a body of evidence out there that we can often draw on. And it's usually wiser to use that body of evidence to make these decisions rather than it is to say, this is how we've always done it. Or my instinct is that um, that we should do X, Y or Z or that, you know, when I was when I was growing up, you know, you know, you you um you know, you, you always did it this way or we always did it that way. And so the evidence gives us some, some, some clues about how to, how, you know, how to do our work better, but also how to just live better lives. Yeah, no. And, and that's what I mean. That's what I think is so great about, again, your stuff is it's just, it's, it's really detail driven. Um, you can really picture it. You can see it. Um, what made you want to write a book about regret? Largely because I had regret. Um, I had regrets of my own, and and, and you know, the, the, sort of the imp the impetus actually was. I mean, this is totally not this is total truthfulness. The imp the the actual the 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 setting where I first started thinking about this was a basketball arena. It was not a basketball game, but it was a basketball arena where my other my elder daughter Sophia was graduating from college, and um and and you know it's a pretty big school, so we're sitting you know some of the graduation is in, in this basketball arena and. I'm there and I'm having, you'll, you'll get there, you know, you'll get there eventually, but I'm having this kind of out of body experience because like this kid who's 22 years old and is in a cap and gown, I feel like he was just born yesterday, <laughs> you know, I can, you know, and so that's like, what the hell just happened here? And then what's worse is that, you know, I say, how can I have a 22 year old kid? I'm like 26, <laughs> you know? And, and so, and I, so, so I'm, so there's a lot of waiting and I'm just kind of in my own head at this transition moment. And I started thinking about some of my own regrets in um, in college. Um, I, I wish I'd, I had I wish I had worked harder. I wish I had taken more risks. I actually wish uh, I regret not being a kinder person. I realized that I wasn't as kind as I could have been in, um, in in college, and that I didn't fully understand the experiences of some of my classmates and things. And um, anyway, so I, I so I came back and I and I from that graduation, and I knew that nobody wanted to talk about regret. Yeah, because it's like, ooh, no, 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 no. Um, and I sh very, very sheepishly mentioned these kind, these regrets to a few people who I knew, and I discovered that everybody wanted to talk about regret. That as soon as I mentioned it, it's like the 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 gates fell down, and it's like this gusher of people wanting to talk about this, which is a very interesting reaction for a writer. And so, I um I I was actually working on a different book at the time. I put that aside. And I started doing some research on regret and and and, and change courses, change course like 180 degrees to write a book on this. I don't think that this is a book I would have written. This is not a book I would have written in my 30s. But in my 50s, when I had some mileage on me, um, it felt in some ways inevitable that I would write this book. Yeah. How many total people ended up taking the survey? Well, right now, so what we did is it, it, one of the ways that I investigated this, one of the ways that I accumulated the evidence or the analytics for this was, number one, is looking at about 60 years of science on this emotion uh, in many different fields. I also did a very large public opinion survey of the U.S. population, um, the biggest public opinion survey ever conducted on U.S. attitudes about regret, uh, try, largely to get try to get some see if there are demographic differences in regret based on things like gender and race and age and whatnot. Relatively few, it turns out. But I also did this other thing where I called the World Regret Survey, where I collected regrets from just invited people around the world to submit a big regret. And right now, our database has over 24,000 regrets from people in 110 countries. It's completely bonkers. <laughs> I mean, it's fascinating, but I just, I never would have expected that. I, 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 I set that up with the aim of getting, hoping to get several hundred so that I could have some, and then, then do some follow-up so I could have some stories to tell in the book about people's regrets. Um, and it just, I mean, and it, the, the, just all over the world, uh, these regrets are come pouring in. You know, there's two things that, that there's, well, the first thing I'll say is, you talk, I love how you phrase this in the book. It's like, and I'm going to get it. I'm not going to get it exact. Um, but 
by learning about regret, you learn what people value. Totally. And it's like you're looking at it a different direction. Um, I love that. And I was like, you know, that really thing about made you say, I want to know what my regrets are. You know, I want to write them down. I want to have a, a full understanding of it. Um, and then secondly, I would say like when you're looking at regret, being able to not, obviously you can't change the past, but putting them in the four different categories and being able to understand where maybe you're leaning one way more than the other, I think it's really, really important. Yeah. I mean, I think, Jamie, you hit on a, a really essential point. I mean, like, like if you, if you had to distill like the core points in this line of, of research about regret, I mean, one of them would be the fact that everybody has regrets, that regret is utterly common that if you don't have regrets, chances are there's some kind of literally some kind of brain problem. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not joking around about that. Yeah. I mean, the only people who don't have regrets are five-year-olds, people with neurodegenerative diseases and sociopaths. Everybody else has regrets. It's We have 50 years of research showing us it's one of the most common emotions that human beings have. Now, another thing to keep in mind is that is that the reason it's so ubiquitous is because it's useful that mm -hmm. that that if we treat our regrets properly, we can enlist them to work better and, you know, uh, you know, live better, uh, work better and so forth. But the other point that you're making here, which is which is really might be the most important thing, is that regret reveals what we value. And, 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 and let me just double click on that for a moment, because I do think that it might be the single most important point in this line of research. Here's the thing. Uh, and here's a way to look at it. If you think about just you, Jamin, or, or any of your listeners, think about um, you and I happen to be talking on a Friday. So let's imagine yesterday, Thursday, you made lots of decisions. You took lots of actions yesterday in, in the course of your life. It's Friday. M most of those decisions and actions you barely remember today. Okay. <laughs> and that's okay. That's efficient, right? You don't want to remember every, you know, and yet there are certain things in our life where decisions or indecisions or actions or inactions um, from a year ago or five years ago or 10 years ago, or in many cases, 30 years ago, that not only do we remember them, they bug us. They bother us. That's an incredibly strong signal. That is telling you something. Yeah. And and in a way, when we when you look at the sort of the taxonomy of regret, what people actually regret, it gives you exactly as you're saying, kind of a reverse image of what people want out of life. Um, and that and so when we think about regret, it clarifies what we value and instructs us on how to do better that it, in its essence is how powerful is why this emotion is so powerful what was the i don't want to say one thing what was something that that you didn't anticipate that the research really told you oh i mean a, a few things i mean one of them was uh, getting back to this how universal the regrets were you know we have this database of 24,000 regrets and and you know what what we found is that most of these regrets fit into one of four categories. There are things what I call foundation regrets, which are small decisions that people make early that accumulate to bad consequences later. So that's things like I, I spent too much and saved too little. I didn't exercise or eat right. Now my health is terrible. There are regrets about boldness where you can you at a moment in your life where you can take a chance or you can play it safe. And when people don't take the chance, most of them regret it. Um, and that could be everything from starting a business to asking somebody out on a date to traveling. There's moral regrets, um, uh, which are if only I'd done the right thing, where people, you know, have a moment where they can either take the high road or take the low road, do the right thing or do the wrong thing. And when they do the wrong thing, most people most of the time regret it. And then there are connection regrets, which are if only I'd reached out, which are about relationships that come apart. You want to reach out. You don't. You think it's going to be awkward. You think the other side's not going to care and people end up regretting that. And, and what the amazing thing, just to answer the question more directly is, is with that lengthy preface is that is how universal these regrets are. If we were to, we could, I mean, you, we could, we could, we could turn your show into a game show in a way. And, and I could, <laughs> yeah. I could, I could randomly select a regret from the database, beep, read it to you. And you would have to guess where it was from. And I don't think you could do it. Yeah. I don't think you I don't think that you would know in many of these cases whether this regret came from a 41 year old guy in Richmond, Virginia, or a um, 61 year old woman in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, 
or a 28 year old woman in yeah. Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. That's it's that universal. Yeah. And it was, it was so cool that you would take their voices and you put them in there with where they're from and, and their first name or whatever. Um, and, and maybe sometimes they had their nationality or whatever. Yeah. Or, yeah. And I thought it was, <clears throat> I just, it, like you said, it might be, like you said, 41 year old woman from, from Wisconsin. And I might have the same regret. Absolutely. You know, and it's just like and the ones you would pick out and the ones that are in there were so common that it didn't matter what my skin color was or where I, what my background was growing up, my education. They're just very common. Exactly. And when we did the and that, that, that that's that's I mean, I'm telling you, we could we could play that game. It, you can even see it further. We also have the, the survey in Chinese in Mandarin and we have it in, in Spanish. And even if you were to take those, translate them. <laughs> You know, it's this, it's they're they're remarkably similar. When I did the big public opinion survey, where I was eight, where you know I asked people about their regrets, and I was looking for demographic differences, really, like sort sort of analytic. This is this is this is truly, you know, data analytics here is looking for demographic differences and people's regrets. There weren't that many. There weren't that many differences between men and women. There weren't that many differences between white people and people of color. There weren't. There were a few differences in, based on education level. The the one area that I think is interesting and probably revealing for your for your, for for coaches is the one big. There was one. I spent a lot of time and money on this to look for demographic differences, and I found one. Okay, but it was a big one. Um, and the big demographic difference came on age. Mm. Um, and it's I think it's very revealing. When uh, the people in their twenties. If so, we look at people in their in their twenties uh, and look at their regrets. About half of them had regrets of action, regrets about what I did, and about half had regrets of inaction, what I didn't mm -hmm. do. Look in the thirties, more people with inaction than action regrets. Go to the forties, way more people with inaction regrets than action regrets. Go to your fifties. Shitloads more people with action, <laughs> inaction versus action regret. The older you get, it's very, very powerful. It's it's like it was so stark that as people age and not even age all that much, what sticks with them are regrets of inaction, regrets yeah. about what they didn't do. When you get to your 50s, 60s, and 70s, it's like a four to one ratio of inaction regrets to action regrets. That's what sticks with us over time, what we didn't do. I mean, I guess it says like we just as we get older and we have more invested, we just we take less risk. It could. I think that's part of it. I think that sometimes we can make sense of our our um, our action regrets. Yeah. So so you can say um, like I have a lot of regrets, um, a lot of them from women, actually. Um, I really regret marrying that idiot. But at least I have these two great kids. So yeah. you can find the silver lining in it. Um, if you have a moral regret, let's say you've hurt somebody. You can go back and apologize. You can make restitution in some way, but for inaction regrets, yeah, you can't do anything. They just stick with people, particularly regrets about not reaching out, particularly regrets about not acting boldly yeah. in you any know, realm of life. You know, it's crazy. Like, you know, in my job, in my life, I've always tried to make really bold decisions. Like I've always like really prided myself on not having a fear like if i think this is what the best thing to do this is what we're gonna do um and then and that kind of worked for a long period of time and then it then it didn't work right and so it's like you kind of get to the point where you go oh this always worked I me mean, always kind of going left and everyone else is going right it's worked for me so often and then suddenly you're like oh that might not have worked perfectly yeah you know, but time, but you know? but you can't always evaluate it based on whether it worked or not because sometimes you yeah. don't have full control over that well, and that's why I think it's great when you look like, that's why I think that's why the book's so great. Cause it's like, if I hadn't read it, I would have said, man, that was a bad mistake. But now when you look at it through, through regret, it's like, actually it could be really valuable. If I can learn all these things along the way, true, you know, and I'll never have to look back and say, I didn't try. That's the most important thing. That part right there. That's the thing that really, that's the thing that really sticks with people. I have this guy, this character in the book. I mean, you know, from reading it, this guy, yeah. this guy in the book named Bruce, who um, was on a train in Europe just after graduated from college. This young woman sits down next to him. 
they immediately have this oh, affinity. They're they're laughing. They're holding hands. It's like the greatest day of his life. Just in it, just out of the blue, out of the blue, this woman sits in the empty seat next to him, and they have this immediate karmic connection that goes on for hours and hours and hours on this train ride. Uh, he's an American guy. She's Belgian. She's working in France. So they're on this train. It's like something out of a movie. Okay, it's like this guy can't believe he's so lucky. This beautiful woman. I sat down next to him and they are literally holding hands. They, they met, they met like a few hours ago. They're holding hands as they're riding on the train. She gets to her stop. She has to get off because that's where she lives. Um, that's where her parents live. He says, I'll go with you. And she said, no, 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 my father will kill me. So he doesn't know this guy. His name is Bruce. He doesn't know what to do. He, um, you know, this is in the early 1980s. So there's no internet or anything like that. You know, can't, you can't like, give her your text or anything <laughs> yeah. like that. He writes his mother's mailing address in Texas on a piece of paper, rips it off, hands it to her. They kiss. She exits. And then 40, four zero years later, 40, four decades later, his big regret is, um, I always wish I'd step off the train. And yeah. what's what when when I and so he, him I interviewed because among these 24, <laughs> I gave people who submitted their regrets. I invited them to uh, include their email address if they wanted to do a follow-up interview. And he, he did. And I interviewed him and what bugs him, this is the long winded point that I'm going to make here is that what bugs him is not so much that his life would have had a different outcome, but that at a moment in that life, he didn't take the shot. Yeah. He wimped out. He wasn't bold and he doesn't know what's going to happen. And so it could have been, that he stepped off the train and, you know, after he spent like two days with a woman, he says, OK, this, this is not a good match. <laughs> yeah. But at least he knows that. And but what sticks, what stuck with him for 40 years is that he didn't step off the train. And that's what really bugs us over time. A lot of times we step off the train and it doesn't go that well for us. We got plenty of people who here's the thing. We, we have there are people in the database who say I started a business. It totally went south on me and I regret ever trying to do that. There are some people like that. Yeah. But for every one of those, there are 40 probably. I wish I'd started a business rather than stayed in this lackluster job. Yeah. And so it's really the decision itself rather than the outcome that really, 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 really sticks with people. Yeah. And what's beautiful about the train story is just the you know reading through the entire book she probably has the same regret i don't know um you, you know, know it's, like, it's, it's interesting well the, the interesting thing about this as a you know i don't know if your audience will care one way or the other but sort of like how like when i would interview people you know i i spent my life interviewing people and so you interview people and then you know you get their story and maybe you interview them again to get the you know more facts right or whatever or third time or fourth time but in this case what would happen is i would interview people and they would change their behavior. He would say, "He, he like, God, I haven't oh. talked about this for a while." And he put out the, he he never he never saw he put out this notice in like Craigslist Paris <laughs> to try to find her. You know, um, we there's another character in the book whose big regret was that she lost contact with her good friend from college, and um, you know, interview her about that. And then finally, she said, "You know, based on this conversation." I decided to reach out to her and I'm like, Oh, come on. You can't keep changing the story on me. And, and so, you know, um, and, and so, but that shows you just how powerful this emotion is. It yeah. sticks with us, but when we make sense of it, we don't ignore it. We don't wallow in it. When we try to confront it, it changes our behavior for the better. There's something about acknowledging your regret that instantly puts you in an action mode. That's an interesting point. It, it, when you acknowledge it, like so much of regret is we, we suppress it, you know, like, like I think in the book, you'd even say like, now, well, I'm better for it, but you never really evaluate why you're better for it and why you're worse for it. You just sort of move on, move past it. But when you really evaluate it, it really gives you some good action stuff. And like, you want to then go and attack it and not make that same mistake again. And you want to find the answers. I think it's a great point. And I think that this is, this is, I think that you're, you're, it's a very, very important point. And, and it's also one of the reasons why I realize this in retrospect, why so many people contributed their regret, because the thing about emotions and particularly negative, emotions, is that emotions are abstract. They're amorphous. 
they don't really allow you to act. That's why people sometimes mm. find them as, as, as sort of traps. Now, that's also what makes positive emotions feel so good, but it's what makes negative emotions feel so bad. It's sort of like vaporous. And, 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 but if you, if you talk about your regret or there's even evidence showing if you write about your regret for 15 minutes a day for three days, what you do is you convert that abstract emotion into concrete words. And that makes it easier to make sense of them and, to your point, Jamie, take action on them. Uh, but you can't take action on vapor. You know, you can't, like, stand on a yeah. cloud. You need to, you need to turn that, that emotion into something concrete that you can work with and move on from. Yeah, so, I, you know, I'm sure the people that are listening that, that know my background, I was, you know, as a head coach at Siena College, we were doing an amazing job. We had a kid named Jalen Pickett who's – Who's one of the big? He's a, he's he's one of the best players in the country right now at Penn State. Um, and I left Siena to come to GW. You know, within three years at GW, I'm 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 on four sabbatical going into the fourth year. Um, and it and I'm sure people are like, well, well I'm sure. Like, does he regret that? You know, and, and until I read your book, I was like, you know, I learned what I need to learn. I, there was a financial portion to it that I benefited from. You know, just the natural things. And it's like, it's okay to say you regret making that decision. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's okay to say that. And by, by saying that, like you really empower yourself to evaluate well, why you made the decision, what parts you regret most. Um, and what I think most people think, you know, people say, well, you regret getting fired. Well, it's like, you know, you know, in this business that can always happen, you know, right. that, that's part of it. You maybe regret the questions you didn't ask, or you regret the, like there was a, there might've been something said and you didn't, you didn't take it to heart as much as you should have in that Amen. moment or, you know, and so there's a lot of things that really helped me to evaluate sort of, you know, and some of those things worked out well for me in other spots. And in this situation, I wasn't detailed enough to know, but now I know. Exactly. And so this, but that's, but this is exactly how you want to deal with regret. So some of us say no regrets, no regrets. I always look forward. I never look backward. I'm always positive. I'm never negative. Um, that's a bad idea. <laughs> but what's it doesn't it doesn't help you learn and grow. Yeah. Uh, what's also a bad idea though is the is the sort of the you know 180 degrees from that, which is beating yourself up. Oh my God, I'm so horrible. I can't believe what an idiot I am. This is you know, is wallowing. That's a bad idea too. What you want to do is you want to just confront it. You wanna let's go back to your point about analytics. It's 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 um it is um it's One analytics. Data it's data. Yeah. It's it's information, and you need to use that. And I, and I actually think that coaches and athletes, in some ways, might be better able to deal with their regrets, if only because they there is the kind of the ethic and practice of watching game film, yeah. you know. And so you watch game film. It's like okay, you you know you totally you know there was some you know. You're, you're, you know, you, you, you ran the play wrong. There was, there was somebody wide open and you didn't hit him. What you didn't hit him with the pass. Look how easily you got boxed out on that rebound. And nobody wants to go, you know, watch their, their mistakes, but you actually do because if you don't ignore them and don't wallow in them, you say, Oh, okay. I got to put my feet in a different place. Oh, okay. I got to get, improve my peripheral vision. Oh, I got to get better at dribbling with my, you know, uh, on the weak side. And so, and, and that helps. And, and so I think that athletes and coaches probably are a little bit better at that because they're used to really analyzing their mistakes. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, I'd add, I think one of the concepts you sort of introduced to, to work with regret and you, know, we kind of hit on just a little bit there, but it's about imagining you're basically on a journey. Um, there, 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 you know, there's you never good... finished. You never, you know, you're never finished. You're always learning. You're always aware. Right. So, I thought that was a really great concept to talk about. There's some there's some really good evidence on that. Uh, Jennifer Ocker at Stanford has a, some some really good research on the idea that when we co come in with a journey mindset, um, that um, it's it's a little bit kind of it sounds a little zenny zen like, um, but if we if we come in with a journey mindset, uh, um, we actually end up can often end up achieving our reaching our destination and achieving our goals more easily than we come in with a sort of a single minded um, a destination, you know, destination yeah. mindset. Now it's weird. It's a little bit, it's a little bit counterintuitive, but there's other, you know, there's other evidence of that. Uh, there's other evidence of that on, in some of the motivation research that, you know, at some level, like if you focus on being excellent, focus on being excellent, 
Focus on getting better. Focus on improving your process and not getting obsessed over outcomes all the time because you don't have full control over those. That is often the best way to achieve that outcome. We see that it's yeah. interesting. I hadn't thought about this. You see this in a number of different realms. You see this in, in Carol Dweck's work uh, on mindset where, you know, you think about it in, in school, you have uh, what, what are often called their learning goals and performance goals. Okay. Performance goal is getting an A. Uh, a learning goal is mastering the material. And what we know is that if you hit a learning goal, it doesn't, I mean, if you hit a performance goal, it doesn't mean that you've learned anything. It yeah. means that you've performed. Um, whereas if you, so, I mean, I'm, I'm a classic example of that because I took six years of French in high school and college, got straight A's in French, and I can't speak French because all I cared about was getting the A on the quiz yeah. rather than learning how to speak French. Um, and so uh, there's some other interesting research and motivation about West Point grads so that the, the, the grads who succeeded the most were the grads who came there saying, why are you going to West Point? Some of them was like, I got a free education and I, and I, and it looks good on my resume. Um, others of them are, you know, uh, I want to serve my country. Others of them are a mix. And it turned out that the people who had those very pure motives who weren't really after anything except for serving, they did the best. And so yeah. there's this weird thing about if we focus on process, we focus on basic excellence not always, but often the outcomes take care of themselves. Yeah, I remember this movie that came out um, when I was younger, Searching for Bobby Fisher. Oh, yeah. The, about uh, that um, trash chess prodigy named Josh, yeah. Josh Waitzkiss. Some of our listeners are going to maybe have to go and Google this. Yeah. Um, but he was just such a child prodigy at at playing chess. And every time he made a step, they would give him, I mean, this is kind of, kind of moving in the drive now, but yeah. every time, every time he, he achieved something, they would give him a certificate. And then they get to a certain point where he's the best in the world. There's no more certificates to be given. And he still wants a certificate every single time. Um, and his, his instructor just gets so mad. And he just starts ripping them out of the page and throwing them at him. Um, <laughs> and I think it's like, it's just like, I, I, it, that struck me so, so strong, so strongly because, I think you can really get caught up on that. On he wasn't worried about perfecting; he was just worried about getting another certificate. And so yeah. he was so, he was so short term, uh, his mindset was so short term that he couldn't really focus on just being the best he could become. And I think talking about journey mindset is about that. It's about and it, you know I would always say this in recruiting. You know we're gonna need everybody on this team to get from one side of the coast to the other side of the coast. We're trying to go from the east coast to the west coast, and you're going to need everyone along the way to be able to give us something different. Mm, and, that's interesting. It's, yeah. and it's about knowing, you know, it's not knowing what we're going to need at the beginning. We just know we're going to need all these resources and all these tools at some point, but you don't necessarily know when they're going to present themselves because you're going on a journey and we've never gone, we've never gone coast to coast before through the wilderness, over the mountains, over the rivers. Um, and so having this mindset has always been something I've really been a big believer in because it's just preaches about always being ready and always trying to get better. Exactly. Exactly. Because yeah. I, I mean, and again, I, I think that again, you, you, one of the things I'll give you one other tidbit from the book that I think lands on this is that in the public opinion survey, the, the quantitative piece of the research, I asked people um, this uh, a question. I said, do you basically do you generally believe that people have free will that, you know, have control over what they do, how they do and so forth. So and most, you know, I think we had something like 80 percent of people saying, yeah, most I, ha I have free will. Um, and then we also asked people at a different part of the survey, um, do you think that in life everything happens for a reason, meaning you know, purely fatalistic view of the universe? And we got 80 percent of people saying yes. Yeah. OK, and so 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 I, so the lawyer in me, you know, wanted just to rip out my hair because it was a contradiction. And uh, but then I stopped and said, wait, wait a second. Maybe this is there's something to this that part of living a good life is realizing, hey, there's some things that I can control and other things I can't control. And if I completely wig out over things I can't control, it's not only useless, it's, it's more than useless, it's detrimental. So what I need to do is I need to focus what I can control, what I, what I can control. And, and, I, and I'm, I've become more and more convinced of that, that if you just focus on what you can control and you pursue excellence consistently over time, it's going to work out for you. Yeah. Not everything is going to work out because that's not how life is. And sometimes shitty things happen. And sometimes there's bad luck. And sometimes 
you do a great piece of work and it doesn't get traction and that's life. But if you, but there's some things you can control and other things you can't. And so as long as you, as long as you can control, as long as you focus on being excellent, what you can control, the better off you are. Yeah, no, it's, it's all, it's all great stuff. I mean, it, and it, it kind of all, you know, leads into e- each other. And that's why, that's again, that's why I enjoyed regret. Cause I felt like all the stuff we're talking about, you know, Carol Dweck and we know we've, we got all these people, you know, Brene Brown, we've got all this research based stuff that we can look at and listen to, but no one had talked about regret. And I was like, man, this really sort of completes it in some ways. Um, and gives you something that we hadn't thought about before. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, that's my goal. Let's talk about drive a little bit. Sure. Um, you know, I, I've got to put together a basketball team at some point here. Um, what's the best way to do that to have uh, autonomy, purpose, and mastery? Oh uh, well, I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to give. I don't want to <laughs> give uh, coach coach. The, the 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 kid who was cut from a seventh grade team is probably not going to be the best uh, basketball advisor here. But you know, but if, if you think about it, so um, so let's let's let. So here's what the research, the, here's what the research, te- what, what, what it tells us is that these kinds of what, what you were talking about with Josh, what Josh Waitzkin basically saying, if you win this chess match, I'll give you your certificate. OK, yeah. that's a contingent reward. And what the what the what what the uh, research tells us pretty clearly is contingent rewards. Uh, if if you do this, then you get that are pretty effective for short for simple tasks with short time horizons. But they're less effective for long for complex tasks with longer time horizons, which is what, you know, a lot of sports is. And um, and so instead, what you want there is you want a regimen where people are being treated fairly, treated well, and have a measure of autonomy, a measure of mastery, and a measure of purpose. Now, uh, autonomy is basically: do you have some control over what you do, how you do it, when you do it? And so, in basketball, I think it's you know, in, in a team sport, you don't want you know pure autonomy all the time. Yeah. Um, but but what you want though is you want people to have a sense that, um, uh, especially that 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 um, that 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 they can speak up that they necessary if they need to take action uh mastery is um is are you getting better at something that matters are you endlessly pursuing excellence which i think is key and then you know purpose i think is really important and in and with purpose in basketball so the purpose i think is more than simply getting the w i think the purpose in basketball is i mean at some level if you focus the purpose on am i being am i making my teammates better yeah. Um, I think you have winning teams who, 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 who do that. Yeah, um, I agree. I, I kind of tied this into like my best teams mm. and, and, so? and I, well, so you look like autonomy and, and there's things you can do for autonomy. Like, you know, let's say, you know, you've got 55 meals you got to plan through the course of the year and I don't care what these guys eat or don't eat. Right. Like, you know, it might be 55 meals that, you know, sometimes it's just you guys need to eat. You let those guys pick what meals they want. Yeah, you let them have control over that. Um, having control of the music that they play in the in the right. locker room, or the music they exactly. play in practice, or you know, hey, we're gonna we got four sets of uniforms. Which ones do you guys want to like? Fantastic. There's a lot of ways that you can do that. Um, awesome. Where they can, you know, where they're gonna live at, right? Like, hey, you're living. I don't care where you guys live on campus, but you gotta live with, but you gotta live with, um, with a teammate. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think those are some ways that you offer autonomy. That some places, a lot of places, would just say, "No, you two guys are living together. We're wearing these uniforms. We're eating this food, and this is what we're doing." And you're going to just sort of stay on this path. Um, I think we talk about mastery and autonomy and mastery a little bit blend because, like, let's say mastery, it's like, how often can I be in the gym? How often can I get in work on my game? I might want to work on it at midnight. I want to work at six in the morning. Great point. I'm not going to be limited about the ability be able to do that. Do I have the best coaches around me that can help me be the very best? I'm a big guy. All my coaches here are six foot two. I'm seven foot two. Do I have someone here that can help me be my very best? Um, and then purpose. I've always felt like trying to connect it to something bigger, much bigger. Um, I never thought about like you just said, being the best teammate. I never thought about that. I always thought about it more as um, connect them to a larger commitment in the community. Okay. Um, but I like yours because yours. Well, is, but here's the thing. It's interesting yeah. you say that, Jamie, because because I, because on the on the um, on the book drive when I, I so I have a whole chapter on purpose and I didn't quite yeah. get it right. I have to say, like like I now as I you know, ten years later, think about purpose not as one thing but as two things, and I think we're both describing those two things. That yeah. that when I originally wrote about purpose, I had purpose as like a big transcendent. You know, thing I'm I'm solving the climate crisis. I'm feeding the hunger, or something like that. And there's no question that the evidence shows that 
that kind of purpose is, is a performance enhancer. But there's another kind of purpose. Again, let's go off the basketball court into just a regular office. Um, there's another kind of purpose, which is just simply, are you making a contribution? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, are you helping um, one of your colleagues get a project out the door? Are you helping a customer resolve their issue? And and I think that they're both. I think that they're 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 both super important. I think sometimes it's hard to make, you know, the leap, you know, um, from, um, you know, it's it's the you know it's it's three minutes into the second half and you're down by four points to say, oh, well, I'm, you know, yeah. what can I do to serve my community? Yeah. Um, you know, I think that, and, and I think that's true in the regular workplace too. Um, I, I think that, you know, you know, but, but, but thinking through, it's like, okay, you know, what does my team need from me right now? How can I contribute to this team right now in this situation? How can I be the player on the floor who is making my teammates better? And, and I think that that is a, that's purpose too. Yeah. You know, we had this group of guys when I was at Siena and like we talked about, I was like, man, that group fit this so well. So we'd be at halftime and at halftime, talk about autonomy. People would think our halftime stuff, we come out and play pretty well. People would be surprised. And they said, what'd you say to my halftime? Do you yell and scream at them? And we literally go in at halftime and I say, offense, defense. All right, you guys tell me what we need to do. And the players tell me what we need to do better. Um, and, and, uh, it's a little unorthodox cause you know, I'm supposed to be, and, and we have our thing, coaches have their thing, but we let them go first. Um, and then even our managers would speak up at Siena. Wow. And that's super it, cool. Yeah. It, yeah. Like the manager doing all the stats was like, coach, we're not boxed out. You know, they would jump up there yeah. and the players didn't look at the managers sideways. They took it in. And I was like, man, was this like one of the best environments we could have had? Because everyone felt that sense of purpose and everyone everyone, everyone worked together and everyone knew, knew what the purpose was in the drive was. It was really unique looking back on it, like how close we were to that. But there's also some, there's also like, there's also, I mean, 40 years of psychology beneath that technique, yeah. which is essentially that, that what we know pretty well is that when, when, when people have their own reason for doing something, Okay. So there's a different, so the, the, the big enemy, the thing about, let me, let me, let me come back at this a different way. We talk about autonomy, smush, um, a mushy kind of concept. Um, the, to me, the, sometimes with these abstract concepts, the way to understand them is to think about what is the opposite, okay. right? And the opposite of autonomy is control. Mm -hmm. and, and people have only two reactions, human beings, forget not basketball players, human beings have only two reactions to control. They comply or they defy. And on a basketball court or in an office or in a classroom, you don't want people who are purely compliant all the time. You don't. Right. You don't want you certainly don't want people who are defiant all the time. You want people who are engaged. And the way that people engage is by getting there under their own steam, by having some sovereignty, by having some say. Now, what we also, so that's important. So what we also know is that when people have, you see this in goal setting. When people are able to set their own goal, participate at least in setting their own goals, they're more likely to meet them. When people have their own reason for doing something, they believe those reasons more deeply and adhere to the behavior more strongly. So that technique of saying, what do we need to do is, is you know, it's not some kind of, you know, again, go back to analytics. It's not some kind of woo-woo approach. It's basically, there's a Again, decades of social psych of of of, of so social psychology, some personality psychology, saying if you want people to do something, let them come up with the reason for doing it themselves, because they will believe that reason more deeply, and they will actually follow the behavior more resolutely. Yeah, no, it's it's a really neat. Uh, it's like a, a neat little life hack. Yeah, no, it's, you know? it's, it's, I mean, I think it goes beyond hack. I think it's basically yeah. fundamental, uh, uh, to, you know, um, uh, I, I think it's fundamental. And I think that, that good teachers, good, good, good bosses, good coaches, um, have an intuitive sense of that, yeah. um, that you want to bring, you know, you want to bring people in. This is not, this is not an argument for, you know, um, purely flat hierarchies in businesses. This is not a hierarchy. This is not an argument for saying, oh no, coaches not as an authority figure. What you want is you want something that is, you want to kind of, you want, you want something that is participatory, uh, that has accountability, um, um, 
you know, you you can merge participatory and account participation and accountability very easily. Yeah, and um, it drives yeah, the, the other thing. The other thing is like 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 you know who like you, you got how many players on the how many players on the on the Siena team like sixteen. 16. Okay. So here's the thing. You have two eyes. That's 32 more eyes on the game. Yeah. They might be seeing something that you aren't seeing. Right. And we're usually, we're usually like seeing, it's very rare. They say something that we weren't seeing, right? Like, like we're usually all on the same page. Yeah. So it's just about having the, just empowering those voices to, uh, to be able to step up. There's also some research. I mean, it's incredibly important in any kind of business. It's it's, it's a work largely of Amy Edmonds, Edmondson at Harvard on on what's called you you know this stuff on psychological safety, mm-hmm. yep. which is do people, you know, do people feel free to do, do are people willing to are people able to take a take a small risk, a sensible risk? Are they able to speak up without getting their head handed to them? And yeah. so you know, I, I think that in some ways we've been seduced a little bit to by this kind of almost this very, very, very old school view that the best leaders are screamers, the best leaders, you know, yell at people, dominate people, control people, you know, somewhere between, you know, um, Vince Lombardi, Bobby Knight and General Patton. Yeah. You know, when in fact, I think that in business, but also in sports, the best leaders are, you know, you got people like, you know, in football, you got Pete Carroll. In basketball, yeah. you got people like um, uh, Brad Stevens and Monty Williams mm-hmm. um, in the NBA, um, you know, who are they're not screamers. They're 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 empathetic. They're yeah. authoritative, but not authoritarian. They're they're yeah. they, uh, they're 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 empathetic, but they're not they're not pushovers. And yeah. it's it's, it, you know. Uh, I think that 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 those those kinds of things are, the, or you know, yeah. I mean, in in women's in women's college basketball, like um, if you look at oh my god, if you look at uh, uh, Dawn Staley or you look at like Trish Vandeveer, I mean, they're they're incredible coaches, right? Um, yeah, I think, and and I think what's what's great about it is like when you recognize that you can drive the performance better. Yeah, and and there's really not, you know, I've I've led both ways. I think when I first started out, I was a little more authoritarian. Yeah. And along the way, I was like, I really don't love this. You yeah. know, I don't love how I feel. I don't love how I make the guys feel. You know, it's a lot of energy to be that. Um, and along the way, it's like, if you do it right, everyone's giving everyone energy. Exactly. Everyone's picking everyone up. Everyone's really committed to what you've got to be able to do. Um, it's just like a better way. And then when I, when I was, I was actually writing this the other day for a speech. It, it like everyone overachieves. Like rarely in that situation does anyone underachieve. Interesting. You, know, you don't look back and go, man, this guy, it's like the environment allows everyone at whatever level they're at to have a level of achievement. Interesting. And to feel really good about it. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. And I think that also the other thing is in in um, you know, in in sports, you know, you have you know, everybody is contributing in their own way. So, you know, if you have the um um, you know, you look at like the, the, the Philadelphia 76ers, I, I, I'm more of an NBA fan than a college fan, but if you look at the 76ers, you have Joel Embiid and you have James Harden, they're the marquee players, but whoever the 12th man is on that bench yeah, is showing up at practices and defending against, you know, helping James Harden get better. And they're all, you know, everybody is do everybody. And, and when people know, and we see this a lot in business, and some again, once again, evidence base is that when people know how their individual actions contribute to a larger whole, they do their job better. Yeah, they like it better. It's you know it it and and it's it's energizing. It it brings energy from that person to the rest of the team. Yeah, it's so unique when the team experience on a pro level isn't about the money that the guys are making, but it's about achieving something that they could only do together. Um, and and it, it's why I think when you know you have these great teams like the Warriors who are all making they they all make good money yeah right but they don't play the game by their contract you watch a lot of teams that will play the game based off their contracts so if I'm making the most money I'm gonna take the worst shots I'm gonna have the worst attitude it's okay but the Warriors are a great example and the Spurs you know a few years ago were a great example where I mean you might not know how much money anyone's making the way they play the game. Yeah, but I think what's interesting about that, Jamie, is that is that is that is that 
the NBA, stick with the NBA for a second or, or the MLB or, or the NFL, um, the NHL, um, in, you know, you have in, in American workplaces, this move toward greater and greater transparency of salary, but yeah. in professional sports it's already there. Like yeah. you're, you're like in, in offices, you know, it's, it's some, you know, insurance company down the road, you're sitting in your cubicle and there's somebody else sitting in their cubicle over there. You don't know how much that person's making. Uh, but if you're, uh, you know, if you're playing for the Warriors or for the, the, you know, my beloved but hapless Washington Wizards, um, you know what the other players are making. Um, yeah. And theoretically, that shouldn't affect your 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 level of effort. I mean, you should, you know, um, and and it doesn't. And it and anyway, um, it it's it's interesting. Sports is interesting because when you when you have people talking about salary transparency, saying that'll never work, it'll cause dissension in the ranks. Yeah. Um, so, well, take a look at professional sports. Like you have yeah. these team sports where everybody knows each other's salaries, and sometimes the discrepancy, especially in a especially in in, in a place like the NBA where there's a salary cap, is huge. Yeah, I think it's it's transparency with that would, would make the work would make the workplace better. I, I, <laughs> I think you, it could, and I think I think it could also make it. I think it could also make it fair. Yeah, as as the exactly as the guy who's paying it, I've got to make sure that that I, I am being fair, that I am being that I'm the people that are doing the most work are being compensated for that. People who um, are making or the people who are making the biggest contribution. Yeah. I mean, let's, you know, you know, anybody who makes the NBA is obviously an incredibly talented athlete, but you know, if you look at, um, you know, um, uh, on the, on the, whoever like think about who the 12th man is on the, on the nuggets and, and Jokic, all right. Jokic contributes more. That's okay. And, but that 12, but if that 12th man on the bench knows what he contributes, that's good too. But you know, it's probably fair that Jokic makes more than the 12th man on the bench. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, I told, we were talking a little bit before we were on air about NIL and, and I actually sent your, your drive metric over to, to a buddy yesterday. Cause I felt like everyone's so not locked in on name, image, and likeness and just throwing millions of dollars at players. And I, and I sent it to him to say, just make sure you're taking care of these things. You know, talk about autonomy and make sure you're making the players lives better that you're still giving them ability to, to master their craft and still giving them a sense of purpose. Um, which again, when you, you talk about baseline rewards, if everyone's getting some sort of NIL or whatever. Um, and so I just sent it to him and I said, I think you should keep these things in, in mind um, as you're trying to build an NIL program within your athletic department. Yeah. I mean, I'm not against, I'm not against uh, NIL because I, I think in part, because it's fair. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if these, if these, um, you know, these, these, if these young athletes are delivering enormous revenue for their school, um, and they're not getting a cent, that doesn't, that doesn't seem fair to me. I do think that it has the potential to, it, it, it has the potential to, to spin out of control. And, and I think we've seen that already. There are a few, you know, football players who have announced their intent to go to <laughs> school one and then then the NIL deal falls through as they go to school two. And then that thing falls through and they go to school three. And it's like, Oh man, Oh man, this is just not, you know, uh, this is just not the way to be when you're 18, you know, it's like yeah. this, it's, you know, um, and it, it, it presents, it presents a chance. It presents it. And there's also a degree of, um, you know, with some of these schools with these big, 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 big booster programs and yeah. a lot of money on the table. I think it, it could have a dampening effect. I mean, you made the good point when we were talking earlier uh, off air about, you know, Texas A&M with this massive NIL yeah. program, but not much in the way of a winning, not, not a winning record to show for it. Right. Just cause you have the most money, like the human dynamic tells, tells us that just cause you have the most money doesn't mean you're going to have the best life. Doesn't mean you're going to be the happiest. You know, I think it kind of ties all in all the stuff we've been talking about today. It's like, you still got to make sure you're accounting for the human dynamic and all these and Absolutely. not just over over indexing in one. And the Absolutely. teams that had the most NIL in football, at least, didn't win. You know, they are all coming up short. Um, and I think it's be, and I would say as an outward observer, it's because they're expecting the money to fill in all the gaps for all the problems that you have in the human dynamic, and you still have to handle those as a program. Could be. And and the other thing you have to the other thing, again, there's a there's a there's sometimes a tension between fairness, but also it's like you know, do you, is this is this person coming to this school because yep. it's simply the school that offered them the most NIL money, or is this person coming to this, this school because he or she 
um, loves the, the program, loves the teammates, wants to be part of a big tradition, you know, um, and if it's if it's simply, you know, this is it's not I think that the decision to go to college and, and think about, you know, them as students, the decision to go to college is different from where to go to college is different from, you know, where can I get the best deal in a toaster oven? Those are two different decisions, right. you know, <laughs> and and, you know, if you're making your decision about where to go based only on how much you're going to how much you're going to earn. I'm not sure you're attracting as I'm not sure the coaches and and teams are necessarily attracting the best um, the best people the best yeah. kinds of teammates, uh, and I'm not sure that's the best way to begin navigating your life when you're 18 years old. Yeah, not excellent point. Well, we we got one last thing we do here on yes, last sir. call. Um, it's the end of the night. I don't know if you drink wine or or you're a beer guy, but it's the end of the night. In the last call, the bell's been rung. On the left side of you, you have someone who's retired. On the right side of you, you have someone who's still actively working. Okay. No family. What two people are you having with you uh, on last call? On the okay. on the left side, the retired person is. Um, um, I think that I want um, Jimmy Carter. Um, okay. And the reason for that is that that guy has led such a good life. Um, you know, he was president and we look at some of our for other former presidents and that's kind of, you know, you know, it's the truth. This is like Obama, Clinton, George W. Bush. They haven't done much in their post-presidency. Right. They've kind of like coasted. And Jimmy Carter from he's like 100 years old. He's still out there building houses. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, God bless you. It's like, I want to be like that. Like, I want to be 100 years old and wake up in the morning as I think Jimmy Carter does and say, I got to do something. Yeah. You know, time's a wasting. Let's go. Let's build some houses. Let's do something. Let's let's negotiate some peace treaty somewhere. And yeah. I just admire. I just absolutely admire that. You know, the former president can coast, and no one would no one would criticize them. And this guy's been a former president for forty years, and he hasn't coasted at all. He has just brought it constantly. And I just want to be like that. And I want some advice on that. Yeah. Um, the um, so that's on the left side. Yeah. Um, on the right side. Um, hmm. On the right side, it's going to sound silly, but um, I might want Oprah. Why and so? Because okay, well here's why. So Oprah, so I was interviewed by Oprah once. How how, how much fun was that? It was awesome. That's a dream right there. If you get rid of Oprah, that's but a here's dream. the thing: is like this that this person is a professional. She was a great interviewer. She was totally prepared. That's the thing. She's like an athlete. She was totally prepared. I've had people, you know, like, like obviously when I'm talking to you, like, like, you know, you're interviewing about a book and you've read the books. Okay. Um, but the, not everybody does that. And, and, and she had not only read the book, she had, she knew it inside out. She asked really, really good questions. But what I like about Oprah is that she has been able to kind of, I feel like with her, she's had a big impact on people's lives and a, an extraordinary commercial success, both, but still be like a decent human being. Yeah. And there aren't that many people. There's just honestly, there aren't that many people like that. Yeah. You know, in my life, having, you know, in all the things that I've done and working in politics and blah, 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 like I've met a decent number of like well known people. And some of them are not very impressive, and some of them are assholes. And forgive me for that word. And and um, and it's like, here's this person who has been as famous as anybody can be and yet is still delivering, affecting people's lives, doing well financially, obviously, but also just being like a decent human being. And so I guess it's those two kinds of, yeah. you know, those two kinds of role models. So um, I like the question. So that's who I want to I would want to have. Last call with Jimmy Carter and uh, and uh, and Oprah. I love it. They both speak to the humanitarian side of you, and I guess so. In a way that I didn't necessarily, I didn't, I didn't really realize. <laughs> yeah, I think Jimmy Carter also had the highest um, highest IQ of any president. I, I believe that's right. Could be. I mean, he was a Naval um, Academy grad. It could have been. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've had we've had a lot of smart presidents. I mean, Obama's a smart guy. Clinton's a very smart guy. Um, um, uh, Nixon was a smart guy. So. You know, you just never know. Smarts is <laughs> smarts is not smart. Smarts is not enough. Yeah. Well, 
Daniel, thanks for your time, man. We appreciate it so much. Uh, what a pleasure. I really enjoyed it, Jamie. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us on The Last Call, powered by Speakeasy, where careers grow through relationships, and relationships grow through Speakeasy. We hope you enjoyed it, and we look forward to connecting with you soon.